0: Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Neil Davidson on. He is a revolutionary designer who's been working hard in Brisbane for many years to elevate the level of designers to the next level so that we are competitive on a global scale. He works to constantly evolve his, his designs and to bring about true change in the industry. I hope you enjoy the podcast and if you'd like to reach out to find Neil, you can find his link in the description. Enjoy. Would you like to start by introducing yourself and maybe speak to your background as an industrial designer?
1: Yeah, thanks, Roman. Um, thanks for having me on. So I uh, am Neil Davison. I'm the design director and founder of Clandestine Design Group. Uh, we're obviously a busy-based industrial design team. Uh, we work both, I guess, locally, nationally, and internationally. Um, our clients can range from mum and dad inventors through to um, you know large corporates and multinationals, cool. which is an interesting portfolio mix of clients, but uh it's it's in the mix where the interest comes, I guess, for, for a lot of the team here. Um and it's been interesting over the last few years, and we've been digging into this a bit later, how COVID has changed the portfolio mix of consultants. Um yeah. and uh how that's created a real shift in, I guess, our working style and our working um, I guess, characteristics.
0: Yeah, yeah, COVID's had a pretty significant change on many different fields, but yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh so yeah. to start off with, what inspired you to pursue industrial design?
1: Well, it's uh, I've actually got to thank my year 10 graphics teacher, would you believe? Um, I never dug into it as to how he knew about industrial design. So I grew up in the country. I, I was fortunate enough to live on the land and um, I was third generation um, or fourth generation farming stock, I guess. Um, and I went to a school that offered you know, um, graphics and um, shop A, shop B and, and those sort of things. So I guess a combination of my... Father's influence on the farm always um, you know uh, building and engineering and fixing things particularly dad had a mentality that when something broke um, he didn't just buy the same replacement part to re- to repair it he'd also he'd always go to the level of engineering a better solution for it hmm. so what I mean by that is if we had a plow and a component on the plow would break you know dad knew that he didn't abuse the machinery he just knew the machinery was flawed so he'd go to the effort of going to a local engineering shop in Warwick or one of the Darling Down centres and and sitting down with those mechanical engineers and actually re-engineering a casting or uh, adding additional strength or structure to it, which I found fascinating as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I guess that set me on that um, engineering-led thought process. And then it was, yeah, as I said, going going forward to the start of that um, session, the graphics teacher. So he he always got irritated with me when I was drafting parts and graphics and always changing the design and making them better, And in my mind anyway. And uh, he said to me, look, have you picked your subjects for year 11 and 12 yet? And I said, no, because I think you should consider as a career industrial design. And back then, so we're talking like 1990 something, I don't want to say, give my age away, but um, he basically applied for all these VHS tapes and this printed material from QCAT, And he had it back to me before i took my year 10 holidays and um i watched that diligently and i saw these videos and i was like wow that's me that's what i want to do Mm -hmm. so i was very fortunate so i set up year 11 and 12 with subjects that kind of were almost prerequisites for industrial design i um, did tech studies and maths b art graphics um i don't know if you guys had technology studies when you went through but it's basically junior, junior industrial design um yeah physics and that kind of just led me straight into um tertiary
0: mm. yeah yeah i mean i feel like that's a lot of the way a lot of the designers got into it i'm the same i did graphics at school and it gave me the the taste for that as a career i didn't even know that product design or industrial design was a thing back then and my teacher didn't lead me in that way but when i looked back on the things i enjoyed in school the most it was always graphics so when i thought about career i was like well what did i enjoy the most go down that path so yeah yeah, yeah, I think that shows the benefit. Like so many people start their career off with a graphics class. They're like, maybe so many designers wouldn't be getting into it if they didn't have that class.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, totally. So you know, and and you know, I guess a combination of my history and my family background. So I was I was destined to head down to. Um, I think I was actually accepted into uh, it was RMIT at the time, and we had a drought in the um, late '90s. That was a really horrific drought in the Darling Downs, and Dad sort of said to me. Where did you get into? And this was really late. It was like February or end of January, and I think we were about to start uni um, back then. And sort of end of February, or early March. And he said to me, Where did you get? Where did you get? Where did you successfully get enrolled into? And I was like, oh, I was Melbourne. And he's like, Well, did you also apply for Queensland? I said, Yeah, I did. So you know, fate has it that I ended up switching, so I could basically be home in Brisbane and then travel, you know, a couple hours every weekend and help him on the farm and hmm. do stuff there. So, which yeah. I haven't regretted at all because you know. Um, you know, QT and the Queensland Education and the ecosystem that we have here for industrial design has been you know, the best place um, for me to be.
0: You study at QIT or QUT? No, so it was
1: QUT. So I was I went through from nineteen ninety eight to two thousand and one. I graduated um, in two thousand and one. So it was back then. It was a a three plus one degree. So we had a bachelor. We were, we were under the engineering school of engineering. So it was a bachelor got environment. Um, was the three year um. I guess, uh, primary degree. And then we went on and did a a graduate diploma of industrial design as our, um, thesis year.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To just to give us a background into the way you design, can you walk us through the process, research, concept development, or final execution that leads towards your final product and the process yeah. you like to follow?
1: So it depends on, uh, as, as consultants, obviously we, uh, we've got a balance Multiple stakeholders and, and inputs, right? So we've got obviously the end user in mind, um, and then we've got our customer, which is obviously our clients, um, and then their customers consider. And the design flow or the design process we use is often gets adapted and modified depending on the client, customer, market matrix, if that makes sense. So if you've got um, an entrepreneur, right? So they've been a they've been a user and a consumer in a particular market space. And they've decided to step across that threshold, that business to consumer threshold, and they've become a business founder, and they're gonna create a business that's solving a tension point for them. You know, they could be a plumber that's decided to build a new type of wrench um, that solves how, you know, they've always, for 20 years, they have struggled with fitting a particular type of toilet to a wall or something, and they have developed a new invention, and, and they'll come to us to help convert that invention to an innovation. And they're an SME, they're literally a startup. So you can imagine for that engagement, we are trying to be really lean uh, in terms of our delivery of that product to market. And what I find often with startups and entrepreneurs is their innovation strategy is always on point. They just don't know how to execute it to market. Mm. But if you flip that and you say, well, let's look look at a tier one multinational company, um, they have lost a lot of connection with their end users they aren't being particularly innovative in the way they're building their briefs. And they've kind of rested back into this state of the fast follower, as we call it. Um, And they're very iterative in their innovation uh, technique. Mm. And a lot of their insights are so big that the C-suite is so far away from the end customers that their insights to their strategic decisions are coming through a sales and marketing channel, which is a very reactive and passive channel. So you can imagine when we engage with a large corporate, um, and we get in and I always work my way up to the C-suite to have these conversations. So we're CEO to creative director level. It's very easy for me to say, well, did you, did you found this company? I was like, oh, no, I've only been here for two years. Oh, what company did you come from? Oh, I was in batteries. I wasn't in plumbing. I was in batteries. Oh, right. So you have no real content knowledge in this sector. No, I don't. I'm just relying on the people below me. And mm. you talk to their managers and their managers in this big corporate are quite transient. They've been there for five years. And there's no actual decision-making staff because those big corporates are so transient in their um, employment uh, nature that they've lost that that latent and tacit knowledge of the sector. Mm. So so I'm answering this a long way around, but so if we're looking for a big corporate, then then you know CDG is a strategic to tactical design consultancy. And what I mean by that is we'll go out and do qualitative research ethnographic research we'll get new insights from market we'll translate those insights to strategic innovation proposals we'll work with business analysts inside the organizations to work out which of those strategic innovations may actually be applicable to their portfolio and their growth agenda and then out of that we'll spin out um, briefs and those Mm -hmm. briefs may not be industrial design briefs hopefully there's one or two in there for us to actually help them with but I've done many strategic engagements with corporates where we haven't resulted in actual tactical work. Mm. And then, you know, hopefully there's a brief that we can help them with, and then and then we we take off our strategic hat and we put on our, our tactical hat, and we get to the business of actually, you know, um, designing the product for market and taking it all the way through um, you know, concept design, the traditional industrial design stages, you know, that our Bauhausian forefathers set up for us, but basically going through the five stages of development out to mass manufacturing and, and production readiness
2: mm.
1: so yeah. that's the big strategic scope strategic but if we're working for the if I go back to the status story the little you know the entrepreneurial plumber founder startup manufacturer with his wrench we'd probably be very tactical and we'd be working out how do we them as quickly as possible um, to market as lean as we can um, so that might mean you know um obviously no sentiment testing and no ethnographic research or, or very limited if we're doing it we're trying to get um using his mates or his other plumbers to do a really lean focus group as opposed to doing a big omnibus style engagement you do for a corporate
3: okay And
1: are getting in the market as long as we can so the spectrum kind of changes the amount of scope we take on changes for the type of client um that we're working
0: with it does seem like that's a bit of a trend with um corporate companies is they're starting to take on more designers to not even necessarily design things but kind of use the design mind to help them make better decisions within the organization like that might be like maybe a I mean it really is I suppose system design kind of encompasses that to some degree but in the future maybe designers will become more integral in the in the high high up level of um, corporate companies because like corporate people aren't always the best at making good design decisions
1: no that's right and I think you know um you know, i think there's the, the design thinking movement has a, a double-edged blade or it's got it's got a positive and a negative effect in terms of what's happened it's woken up a whole executive group of business leaders to the concept of design and the value mm-hmm. of design um, and that's good because you know if I, if I think back to when i started this career profession and when i graduated and was working it was um and i'd love to tell you a little bit about that that i guess back 20 years ago but you know, for my old boss, Craig, uh, who was a world-class designer coming from another part of the world and engaging in the Australian market, it was very immature around its design usage, right? So it was a really hard sell for him to en- engage and prove the bay of design. Mm. And now I think about um, the transitions that, that's occurred at a corporate level through the efforts of IDEO and Frog and, and those sort of, you know, Stanford and FASCO and all those kind of channels, we're starting to have a much I can I can get myself up to the c suite and I can have a meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel that I have to unwind a lot of the briefs and a lot of the strategy that's occurring because they've all you know had a design thinking workshop and they think they've solved the problem, but they haven't actually gone out and done the qualitative research and the actual mm-hmm. strategic design work that needs to be done. But at mm-hmm. least we're at least we're up there, yay! At least we're up there yeah. having a conversation to actually um, sort of correct and steer the ship in the right direction.
3: Yeah, yeah. The value
0: of design seems to really have accentuated into the public domain in the past few years. Huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, you're a young guy and I'm sure you've travelled and will travel more, but, you know, Australia, in terms of, um, you know, the manufacturing sector of Australia, it's, it's, it's pretty young and mm. the utilisation of those companies in Australia using design is, is very few. Mm. Uh, and you go back to Europe, for example, where, you know, there's companies that are, you know, 400 years old and have been, using design, industrial as well, using craftsmen and then using industrial designers when we obviously matured into that state of being for, for a very long time. And, you know, I can always laugh when I travel through Germany and you meet someone in a restaurant or a cafe and he, here you have to go into great depth explaining that an industrial designer does not design sheds. You know, mm. we are what we are, but in, in say, Germany, like, oh, yeah, my brother in law is an industrial designer. Yeah. You know, totally understand what you're doing. So it's mm. a very different... um Exposure rate, I guess, or, or even
0: even like specialization, there's so much more specialization over there. Whereas here it's you've got to be very much a generalist, kinda of like yourself. It's a lot harder to be a specialized specialized in a very specific field here, because there just isn't the work for it. So...
1: well there's only 25 million people, right? And that yeah. and we're that awkward size where we're big enough to be lazy and we're isolated enough that we're protected.
2: Mm.
1: So when you think about corporates in Australia. Um, there's enough capacity for them to be averagely good and sustainable off the Australian sector, off the Australian market. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, the, the dollar's weak. Uh, the distance is hard. So they're not getting smashed by world-class, design-led international companies, mm. as they normally would be if they are in mainland Europe or in, in the US, right? But you look across the ditch to our kiwi friends, and you know four and a half or five—I don't know what they're up to now in terms of population—but that's not enough to sustain yourself as a corporate or any any company. If you're starting, if you're in a startup in New Zealand, you you are not looking at a national market;
2: Mm.
1: you're looking at an international market. And if you're going to be an international company, you have to be world's best. Mm. So that forces the New Zealanders to bring design on early and immediately, and importantly really value it so when you see startups that come out of the new zealand ecosystem very early on there's design ring representative being part of that core team because they need to be differentiated they need to lead their category otherwise they won't survive yeah Yeah. okay so that's a really interesting insight around i mean i've spent a fair bit of time either being mentored by or working in or educated and schooled by um the gandoffs of the design scene and, and many of those great wizards uh kiwi um brand designers and industrial designers and service Mm. designers yeah what do you see are
0: the biggest challenges as an industrial designer and how do you work to overcome them
1: um well i mean it's interesting you you know you industrial design is is fundamentally a creative pursuit Mm. and you're and you're trying to solve problems and um you know you work into a consultancy it's it's, it's it's in-house perspective and there's you know uh, a designer maker perspective and then as a consultancy perspective um for us we we push as hard as we can until um you know and often through and out the other side of the budget buffer to the point where we're in the red uh to try and solve these problems and make sure that every stakeholder input and influencer along the supply chain and the, the value chain is being looked after and then make sure the lifestyle of the product is sustainable and sensible. Mm. And then try and deliver it all on market, uh, on time, at the right price point. It's incredibly challenging profession. fashion. Mm. And there's so many spinning plates, so many constraints and inputs that you're putting and working through. Um, so, I mean, the nature of the business itself, I'm saying, is the number one challenge. And mm. the second one is you, you're often you know, creating stuff that's never existed before. Um, and, you know... When you're working with clients that have been a, a mature r d clients they've gone through this many times um then they, they get it they understand this is part of the process but if you're working for, uh, for a whole bunch of startups that are maybe self-funding or bootstrapping and prototype one only works at 80 percent and prototype two works at 85 percent prototype three works at 95 percent, at that point in time they're pretty stressed right mm. because They've just done three works, rounds of prototyping are still not 100 and to be honest they probably will never get it 100 perfect but um for them that's 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 a lot of anxiety so from from my perspective as the design director and manager of this business a fair bit of my time is is client, particularly for startups is education um and execution and mentoring you know mm-hmm. there's a lot of um client management and, me- and, and mentoring that goes on in the background so i didn't really answer your question about challenges but I guess um, the nature, nature of what we do is challenging. And then you, I guess in more recent times, we've got COVID and supply chain logistics and tyranny distance issues. Um, that's made it, it's made it very challenging the last three years to do high-speed product development, which you often see in consultancies.
2: Mm.
1: Things that would take six months are taking nine. and Things that would take nine months are taking a year and a half. And it's pretty frustrating all around, right? Mm. Um, so... We are looking forward to this year. We've had a massive run recently with all of our clients wanting to get ready to go. And they're, they're all starting to ship in the coming weeks um, back to China and kick off their production programs and be on site to oversee new product development. Right. So I guess coming back to my statement I made earlier, the hinted I wanted to talk about or could talk about with you is the change we've seen with our corporate clients manufacturing in Asia. Mm. It's been quite interesting to see that startups and SMEs have been fine. They've been pushing on because when they're bringing new new product to market, they're only doing small runs, right? So it's, you know, there might be a, the first off run of a new product to market might be at 500 units or 1,000 thousand sets. In the grand scheme of things, that's a partial container load. It's not a, a big amount. The large corporates, when they're doing a run, it's, you know, 40 containers. It's mm. big money. And they need people on the ground to make sure a new product not just comes off tools right it goes through the assembly line right goes through qc goes all the way through the final boxing and it's putting those containers perfectly and in the last three years we haven't been able to do that so we've seen generally in the industry um a lot of big corporates pull back their r&d programs and pause them or just you know um slow them down and and i guess the flip side of that i've had the benefit of being able to run existing portfolio product um in the market uh, that's seen often 25 to 30% upticks in sales. So they're they're selling old product that they've totally paid off all the tools on, all the NRE, all the CapEx is all being paid off on and products that they would have normally retired. They've had this massive kick up in sales, um, which they've loved. Uh, But anyway, the rush is on now. They've got to get back into the game and get over there and sort out new production as soon as possible.
0: Do you think that these issues in China are going to, cause and effect where people start manufacturing onshore instead of offshore? Or do you think it's not going to have that much respect?
1: Yeah, look, we had, in 2019, you might remember we had the tariffs that kicked off between China and the US. And that was pre-COVID. So a lot of our large corporate clients said, Neil, get us, you know, see if you can, see if you can explore alternative agent supply chains outside of China. Because some of those, depending on the product, some of um, the tariffs were up to 27%. Which is massive, right? That's a, that can be profit margin on some mm. products. So we spent a lot of 2019. It was awesome because um, I was able to reconnect all over Asia and 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 you know rehouse and redeploy uh, manufacturing programs, you know, to Vietnam, Philippines, Taiwan, Malaysia, um, and re and rekindle a lot of manufacturing networks that we that I've worked with over 20 years. But to be honest, in the last 10 years, it's all been very China-centric. Mm. So it's been awesome to reconnect and spread that work and then and then covid hit and then the same manufacturers called me and said neil can you get us home and that's been far more challenging i think we've had and i'm probably being kind i think probably somewhere between 20 to 30 percent success on pulling stuff home um is that just because we don't have the capabilities anymore yeah look it's it's a combination of things you've got you know obviously when the, the car industry left and, and, and closed down um, as the as the primary manufacturers of those, you know, a car is a you know made up of a thousand systems and a million components, right? So you think about all the subsidiary companies that sit underneath that sector, uh, th- those subsidiary, you know, secondary and tertiary suppliers that are existing, that are still capable of doing component manufacturing are the very best and mm-hmm. the ones that we're actually running globally. Yeah. So you've gone from a big field of capacity down to, you know, if you think about die casting in this country, there's probably only a handful, less than ten die casters left in the country. I'm mm. talking high pressure die casting. To my knowledge, I'm happy to be at, school at any anytime. Um, but of those die casters, most of them have gone to zinc because aluminium, um, which is which is essential for so much that we do, is takes um, so much power and so much furnace energy to keep hot compared to zinc that they've converted their factories over to zinc. Mm. So when we're trying to bring high-pressure die-castings back, um, say, from Asia to Turkey, we're limited to you know um, that group of, say, 10. And then in that group of 10, we're limited to the two or three guys that are companies that are still providing that service. And they're world-class, mm. which means they're already peaked. They're already at maximum capacity. And here we are trying to bring in not a, not a massive production run, but a decent production run capacity into the team and they're saying look you know, can you can you double or triple that volume for us because if you can we'll build another section of our factory but if you can't we're not going to displace one of our existing high, high volume clients for you so mm-hmm. it's like we need to really commit and then they'll expand or we just don't get the action we, we can't get the capacity yeah so yeah it's quite interesting at the moment so it's not like we don't have the skill sets. It's reduced, but we've still got them. And the capability is reduced, but we've still got it. But it's now at capacity. So unless the government or um, financing mechanisms kick in to unlock more capacity uh, or stand up new ventures, we're going to have a struggle around solving capability for a long time. Yeah. I mean, COVID really highlighted for me, I used, we, we were part of a COVID response team for the, the um, Australian Design Council of GDA set up. So we basically a whole bunch of industrial designers, consultants gave their time in kind to help um, source, develop, produce, manufacture um, PPE gear. And um, yeah, I found it really interesting how, as a nation, how little we have around, we've got still like tertiary and final stage product manufacturing, but secondary and, and primary feedstock, we're in real trouble. Mm. You know, I remember ringing up um, suppliers for PETG film. That was, th- I think it was 3M, and it was, um, you know, medical grade. And um, I can't remember exactly. It does now. This has been a few years ago, but you know, I remember on one day I rang up, and there was like 130 kilo- kilometers of the, of the film in the country. And I must have rung up a week later, and we're down to 22 kilometers. And then by the final week, we were out, and that was it. Right. But- and, and at the same time. You know, you're seeing reports on the news of us traditionally shipping Coke bottles out to China to get shredded and reprocessed in the film, um, but it's the same material. We just don't, we're not processing it here and we can't produce it into other other feedstock or other channels. So, you know, something to think about as an emerging designer, and, and if I can carve out time in my day, I'm, I'm really wanting to build it as a project, is helping map um, the existing manufacturing ecosystem across... Um, you know, primary feedstock to tertiary product supply and seeing where our holes are in terms of supply Mm. and where those holes are is where a a circular economy initiative can occur. Mm. A circular economy initiative is also a sovereign capability initiative and it's been a big thing. I have I had the epiphany over COVID and, and every government official I can find and tell, I'll tell that story to because... They're not quite joining the dots that sovereign capability and circular economy are actually the same thing. Or, yeah. or or very, very linked, I should say. Um so I find that fascinating and it's you know, at some stage this year I'll try and find time to um, seek out some partners to explore that further. But um
0: Yeah. I suppose that's the issue of globalisation. We've taken so much so many operations offshore now that we've lost a lot of competitive advantage and we yeah, pretty much rely on all these other all these other countries. But yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, mate. I think it's, um, you know, the, the defense, the Australian federal government is activating what they can through defense force initiatives. Um, and at, at the end of the day, when you stand back, you look at any government entity or structure organization, it's very passive. It's a passive entity, um, you know, whether it's the our, our friendly politicians that, you know, move quite you know, they're a bit like those executives I started telling you about in the large corporates. They're quite transient, you know, depending on which party's in at the time. So the the knowledge holding and the the leadership around a sector is up to years at a time. And inside the silos of each of those ministerial portfolios, um, there's no active neural network. It's very passive. Hmm. And um, the only active method they found at the moment, well, one of them, they're obviously standing up a whole bunch of initiatives, but the one I'm seeing a lot of money being spent in it's translating to meaningful manufacturing ventures um, standing up is, is military endeavors, um, yeah. which is interesting. but
0: well, that um, just shows like I mean we obviously were offshore of even a lot of the military you yeah. know, manufacturing processes, and like even from like a defense standpoint, it's pretty bad decision. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah <laughs> no, goes
0: down we don't even have the capabilities to make our own weapons. like it's yeah, it's not really that sustainable. yeah,
1: no, it's it is interesting times. it is interesting times. but you know it's um. You know, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing uh, a will. I'm seeing, uh, you know, whether it's as close as family members to just general consumer trends, um, and and generational shifts in terms of buying and buying power. People are quite interested in, in understanding and spending more on sovereign capability or sovereign-produced goods, mm. um, and that's going to have to happen, uh, as well as us just be smarter about how we're producing these things if we are going to be doing them local.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you kind of already mentioned this, but just in terms of sustainability, how does it play a role in your job as a designer? And what steps do you take to ensure your designs are eco friendly, or at least you do your best to make them eco friendly?
1: Yeah. So, as I said, it's sort of, um, you know, we'll work with the client depending on the nature of the, the client, you know, if it's an entrepreneur, well, even big corporates, right, they've never really done a, walk, a life cycle walkthrough of their products. Mm. So one of the first things we do before we kick off a project is we will, uh, and I'm talking, you know, not necessarily hour by hour, but at least week by week to two months perspective, walk through the supply chain journey all the way through to the procurement logistics journey, all the way through to the products, shipping to its unboxing to its setup to its use all the way through to its first maintenance cycle and then its first yeah. end of life experience we will map that to death mm. and we do that with the designers and i do that with the team involved and that implicit that innately briefs the team on the expectations of the challenges far beyond any written brief then
2: mm.
1: and it also educates the client on uh how much work they have to do because a, a lot of that journey they have no idea about we have mm-hmm. more idea than they do about that through all our past project experience, right? So, um, and in there, we have moments where we can talk to them about sustainability and sustainable actions they can take now. If they're, if they're an emerging company that's building their processes and their, their business model, we can have great impact hmm. in it um, An older company that's got factories in Europe and China and Taiwan, and they've got these facilities and massive overhead and burden, and they've got all these invested supply chain networks and tentacles, it's It becomes less. It becomes about material choices, um, design for manufacturing, design for disassembly, design for maintenance, Um, and and we can have those kind of impacts as well. So, you know, I've had some conversations where you know, let's not design a product. Let's just make it a software service. Let's not do that, right? So, and you can have that conversation with an emerging startup. It's very hard to do it with a a granddaddy business Mm. or a very established business. So. Yeah, so it's it's all the time, and all and and every time we get the chance, we're trying to change and and shift the needle. Mm. Um, you know, uh, constantly spending money on, on resources and supply kits. You know, we just we just invested a lot of money in a um, sustainable non-food grade, so non-food supply chain biopolymer supply chain kit uh, that came through from Denmark the other day. And I've just assigned to Sarah, my senior designer here, and her role, she's half Danish, so she's obviously got the ability to speak with the, the corporations. She's trying to track now, how do we get those materials that are awesome materials, how do we get bags of them to trial, and then how do we get supply chain out of Europe to our suppliers in Asia, and work through the logistics of that. And that's horrendously difficult, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm, fun- we're funding that. So that's an example of me just funding that exercise to try and solve the solutions for our clients, because if it gets too- if there's too many barriers, they'll just default out to what's standard. So I'm trying to remove the barriers and say, well, this is how we do it. And this is the costing to ensure there's a tariff, but it's only 2% and we can manage that. And here's the solution, so let's do it. And yes. it's a very different exercise, a very different conversation if you have that solution provided. So. I guess we've kind of, to answer your question, we're being as proactive as we can at every point in the life cycle of that product's development or that business's development. And we're retrospectively trying to solve and fix supply chain um, problems that we're seeing at the moment.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Like, it's not as simple as use sustainable materials. It's sometimes they're not even available. Like, no. the system isn't set up to, you know, have those materials available to manufacture. So yeah. I suppose that is probably, like, in a way, that's where government mandation is going to need to come in. Because, like, if corporations aren't forced to... You know require to set up those systems it's a lot harder to get it get the ball rolling
1: yeah yeah for sure
3: but yeah
1: and i I guess i'm really looking forward to And you guys are probably aware of the trend the right for repair trend that's coming through from europe we're looking forward to that i think that's going to be um you know and and that's not simple either right if you look at what sweden and 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 norway and those uh, and finland are doing around right for repair they're standing up whole education systems around trades like, like an appliance electrician hasn't been taught in Sweden in twenty something years, I think I read the other day. Um so that's effective whatever the Swedish version of tape is. They're rebuilding that tape course to then train technicians so that I can take my washing drop my washing machine on my dryer to that location. I actually have someone who's qualified to help me fix it.
0: Yeah, so that's the thing. No one's even qualified anymore. like i I used to have a I had nineteen like seventy five record player. And I couldn't even get anyone to fix it. There's one guy in Brisbane who can fix it and he's like 85 years old. And once he's gone, we'll be screwed. Like, yeah, that's it. There's, there's, you know, there's no one to do it. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's like what you're saying. The young people just don't really know how to do it because they never were trained it. like these people, they had the whole careers in that,
1: in that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were working with a um, sheet metal company the other day. And they got a job, a local company, just a really good quality um, sheet metal contract manufacturer and they had a contract to do a i think it was a massive brass bar um down the down the gold coast one of those fancy hotels it was like 30 or 40 meters of brass and um them knowing me knowing i had a lot of connections in industry they called me up and said you know any like braziers the only guys that can still braze and i went oh Maybe so i had a ring around a few and, and found these old guys that were literally as you say um yeah. well and truly retired and um actually were former TAFE teachers it turned out mm-hmm. but they ended up going down and teaching um these guys and all the young um, tradesmen down there how to braise again and it was it was a really i didn't wasn't i unfortunately wasn't there to say it but it, i got called up a week later said it was a pretty magical experience for the guys to be taught by these mm-hmm. old craftsmen and wizards about how to do an ancient craft that for this project was essential right but the yeah. um, couldn't do you see it in plumbing right you can't get plumbers don't braise anymore they just have these poly crimp um pipes that just hydraulically crimp onto fittings now you know it's sort of mm. dying out that one
0: yeah i mean even even like the i don't know the amazing design of a lot of old products had been lost like the mechanical aspect of a lot of products like back in the day you know film cameras record players watches all mechanical and like the way they were designed was so amazing like the people who designed them were you know truly amazing like working how everything can work together to you know create the overall goal and these days like you can just get an electronic circuit board to pretty much do everything that they used to be able to do but like the the sustainability aspect isn't necessarily there like you can buy a camera from like the 1970s that's probably still running but will a camera from these days be running in that time probably not no yeah, yeah that's
1: right that's right yeah it's interesting mate. and i guess the trade craft of you know industrial design is still very much i think and uh, you know, it's 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 interesting how I find it, I find it intriguing around you know, yes, we can dig into it as well if you want. But like the the, the we talked about strategic industrial design and design thinking and design system design and all that user experience design and that, that's all important and it's all there, but more so now with the Industry 4.0. As traditional industrial design, it's it's never been more important. Hmm. And you know, when I'm having every second client wanting to put a Wi-Fi chip in this glass, yeah. and it connected, right? There's no industrial designers left that understand how to make the glass, right? They all know how to program the Arduino board and how to um, you know, do the firmware and the basic code to connect it to Amazon Web Services. But no one understands the materiality of the old tradecraft of industrial design. Hmm. And it's 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 never gone away. <clears throat> it's still been here, and if anything, it's more important. There's there's more need for it than ever. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, I guess globally we've got an education problem where education is shifting away from those traditional industrial design um, mm. skill sets that we need, and we only and, we, and industry's scrambling for fundamentally. Well, even with like
0: global chip shortages, it's probably gonna. Like, like a lot of cars just can't even be manufactured at the moment because there's such a limitation in chip shortages. So maybe there'll be more of a reliance moving back to those mechanical processes. I don't know, you know, to, to have that availability. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Cause like even thinking like if you need a, these days, as you're saying, if you need to design a glass, you include a chip in the bottom to do something, but if, if it can be done without the digital process or the electronic process, maybe we need to resort back to that and, you know, make it in a more mechanical way.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. Yeah, and and you know it's uh I often see that with MVP stuff, right? I, when we're working with entrepreneur clients, I go straight to level four, and it's yeah. Wi-Fi enabled, uh, supporting up, uh, which is fine, and and happy to work in those projects. But in reality, uh, if it is a new to market or new to world product, <clears throat> we can actually probably prove its value um, to at least fifty to seventy five percent surety by just running a gen one mechanical version Hmm. or even a hybrid right electromechanical version, it doesn't have to be a full software enabled version at gen one and and in terms of industrial design in terms of sorry in terms of product development costs the the id and the hardware is never usually the most expensive when it comes to a level four iot device right so it's always software and firmware is the really expensive part of the play so just from a from a business strategy perspective, you know, if you can get it, if you can get it into market and get it valuable and meaningful to customers where they're going to drive a business off it and it hasn't had that level of IoT and enablement, then it's actually a sensible way to go.
0: Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Can you ent- can you discuss the importance of manufacturing within your process and how you help young designers get to that point of being able to design for manufacturing?
1: Yeah. So this is this is one of these um, critical trade craft skills right that we we're missing now out of the sector out of education in the sector and and we're seeing it you know all the way back to high school you know i'm starting to see young graduates who are coming through university programs and you, when you engage them and you look at their portfolios and you look and you talk to them in interview context you're like did you, did you do any shop at high school mm. oh no we were a stem high school ah what does that mean i'm like oh well it wasn't really a focus or a priority for me and my parents so we just focused on straight sciences and those sort of things like okay but you do want to do industrial design oh, i love i love industrial design okay so even even that practicality around materiality and manufacturing mm. is missing at a high school level yeah and it's not getting backfilled to the same extent it was in my education and in current units so that training burden around um you know, trade, craft, industrial design for manufacturing is all on the all on the employer now. Mm. And you know, I remember when I got my first job, I was lucky enough to get it. Actually, I got it with Craig off the back of a of a year, third year DFMA project. You know those reverse engineering teardown projects. Mm. I did I, you know, one of the projects I did pretty well in, and he just happened to be my guest lecturer at the time, and was pretty stoked with what myself and my um, group mate did. And he offered us an internship and um when i asked him why he picked us out of the 40-odd other groups that were presenting he's like you guys had the innate knowledge around how to manufacture that product i could see in the way you were presenting it that my training burden was the least but your talent level was just as high as everyone else's yeah so, and, and yeah, you know, he probably put six to 12 you know, yeah, six to twelve months of training into me before I was profit positive, right? Um, and I think now we're looking at years of training. Mm. It's probably two to three years of training a graduate before they're profit positive. Um, so, and it's not just manufacturing knowledge, it's everything, it's CAD, it's sketching, um, it's visualizations, it's, there's, a, there's a, a real issue around bringing all those skill sets up. Um, mm to level to the point where you can give them a project, uh, a set budget, and they can execute and deliver the client at an industry standard, right, which is obviously world-class standard Mm. that's on budget. Yeah. So anyway, coming back to your point around DFMA and and manufacturing, so, you know, and you mentioned it before, in Australia, we we tend to run um, the smaller firms, the smaller businesses, um, the small industrial design consultancies, and then the smaller manufacturing companies um, don't have siloed or specialized r d teams they have an industrial design
2: mm.
1: and that industrial designer has to go from marketing feedback and brief all the way through to china over C mass production yeah. whereas if we're in a larger corporate or a larger industrial design team you know, um, some of the tier one consultancies that we're lucky to have here in this country, you'll see them start to split their front end, their creative front end to their technical back end and, ha- and have disciplines being represented in that workflow. Mm. And that's particularly an American model. Um, you'll see that a lot in the States. Um, I've got mates that I graduated with that are creative front end and they work not only in just that area, but they work in a particular market sector. Like He just does dishwasher facades and that's all he does, just works on dishwashers. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's that specialisation gets really niche in those big corporates. Um, so in the Australian context, and, and to a degree, um, a lot of our, if you think of our founding fathers around consultancies here, and then the industrial design sector here, it's heavily European influenced, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see that jack of all trades, designer does everything methodology um, is existent through our ecosystem, especially at a smaller corporate level and particularly at a smaller corporate level in Europe as well. So, you know, and that's, and then, uh, you, I don't know, you probably haven't seen it yet, but when you get out and travel and you engage with other design teams around the world, because of that, if we do everything um, necessity realistically in Australia, that when you go, you go to these big corporates, multinationals, the design directors are Australian. If they're not Australian, there's a fair chance, 90% chance they're Kiwis, right? Mm. Because they, from the from when they were first, they got their first job. They're asked to do everything. Yeah, they become masters of everything, which means they're actually perfect design directors and design managers because mm-hmm. they can control all the disciplines with that. Um, yeah, I guess that master level of craft.
0: Yeah. So I suppose in a way, you can see it as a competitive advantage to some degree.
1: Oh, definitely. Mm. Like you know you. Three to four years experience working in the Australian context will immediately elevate you, which should. Obviously, you have to be a talented, driven and passionate designer. But if you're there, you'll immediately become senior designer or design manager level in, in say, the American context. Mm. I've seen it far too many times for it to yeah. not be a trend. It's, it's, it's definitely a fact. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a good thing to do, right? It's, just, it's not think that you're at a disadvantage here. You're at an advantage. I guess the challenge is to get into that work space you need to um step up your knowledge um centers across a vast array of manufacturing disciplines Mm -hmm. you know if i think about the studio right now we've got extrusions high pressure die castings blow moldings injection moldings compression rubber moldings yeah um sheet metal just so much sheet metal Um, you know some bit of gravity casting at the moment as well um just on traditional furniture we're doing we're doing some furniture at the moment so we've got some traditional woodworking and and I well, said, traditional traditional materials but using cnc processes and um, automation levels of, of manufacture hmm. so you know you have to you have to have a, a knowledge across all sectors so as a young designer i guess our advice to you is is um you know and craig I think about my old boss he encouraged me to go and do this outside of ours um you know he was always empowering us as, as his design team to go and seek knowledge. And I'd often grab a couple of cartons of beer and I'd obviously before going, I'd ring up a factory that I hadn't been to that might've been part of our network. And I say, mate, can I, I'm i one of Craig's Dream Designers. Can I come over after three o'clock on a Friday and actually have a bit of a tour and then, and then give the guys some beers? Now that's maybe not the most um, culturally appropriate thing to do this day, but that's sort of how I engaged and understood and took the burden off my employer But Mm -hmm. showed initiative around learning and at the same time, I picked up a network uh, contact and a knowledge of industry, right? So um, I'd I'd spend a lot of my time doing that and understanding innately the process and following a piece of sheet metal from sitting on a rack all the way through to its final powder-cutted stage. Mm. And spending time with the guys, understanding what the limitations of a gooseneck press or a, a laser cutter or whatever the case may be. So that, you know, um when it came time to design and that materiality, I, I had a level of understanding that meant it was um not just feasible, but I could actually push it. You know, the difference between good and great products is often how we push the manufacturers to do better, to do something they've never done before. Yeah. That's where the design spirit comes into this situation, right? So um
0: and I just push the you innovation have to first. What's that mean? But to push, you have to know the limitations. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah
1: the limitations, and the, obviously the foundations, and mm. and and build the experience model that you have across these areas. And so I think you know, from from if you, I guess this talks about educating. You know, this sorry, this podcast is about um, downloading on knowledge and trying to share it with emerging designers. I think mm. you know, initiative is key, and and understanding what you don't know, um, and and projecting forward. You say, well, if we, in two years' time, if I want to be this designer in this kind of context what do I think the knowledge areas are I need? Yeah. And just start filling them, right? And at some point on that journey, you'll keep applying for jobs in something like where you want to be, and the burden of training will have reduced. Mm. And the design director will go, actually, this, this guy or this girl's got enough skills that I can bring them on, and they're going to be useful for me. And sure, they don't know about blow molding yet.
2: Mm.
1: It's clear to me that I haven't done any injection molding, but they're actually are pretty good, they're pretty strong as sheet metal. And mm. any good consultancy in Australia will have, a fair bit of sheet metal going through it, right? So um you can see how suddenly as an employer I'm starting to think, right, okay, well burns low. I can probably back, I've got two or three projects I could use this junior designer on. Um yeah, let's give them a go, right? Where at the moment it's like, right, I have to teach them on oh, that's the other thing I want to talk about. So let's say you let's say you spent, you know, get a job somewhere i think and as the other i guess recommendation i have is any job is a good job right at this point in time in your career and it may not be aligned with values or it may not be aligned with where you want to be as a career goal or an aspiration perspective but and you may not be picking up the design skills that you want in that first vocation but you'll definitely be picking up professional practice skills you'll definitely be picking up um you know team working and, and managerial skills or how to re- react to managers you'll understand um you know business ethics around communication and email you'll start understanding all these other tacit and and not really discussed parts of working in in a a business context but as an employer with a graduate i still have to train right not just the design skills i have to teach all that other stuff Mm. so if you can actually lift the burden off around professional practice which may not be related to design but just business professional practice and get that experience anywhere again, you're helping helping reduce the burden of employment or burden of training, I should say. Mm. I think about some of the guys I employed back in the day at the CMD, when I say employed, interviewed and Craig employed um, back in the day at the CMD. uh, You know, I can remember some of the guys coming through and they'd spent a couple of years at Acacia Ridge working for HVAC manufacturers, which like just industrial HVAC manufacturers, like huge air conditioners that sit on the back of, on top of Bunnings, right? Mm. So the most unattractive objects but you look at these guys with their work and they trained under you know a very meticulous sheet metal master and their sheet metal skills were off the chart the technical mm. drafting skills were off the chart the project management skills were off the chart their professional communication because they had to deal with all these contractors was off the chart good mm. right tick 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 so if this guy can do this and he's got this portfolio and he's got a passion, then we can teach him how to injection mold and we can teach him how to blow mold and we can teach him all those other skills. So this is a yeah. highly employable talent, right? Mm. So anyway, I guess I'm trying to summarise is 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 this look for the opportunities in any, any position that comes. And and I think you know, if it was Greg or one of the other guys, Anton, said that you, know, you always leave a company stronger uh, than you found it. So always yeah. leave a positive impression and, and provide positive change. Hmm. And then there's no real issue when you're moving on from you know, every couple of years to, to keep pursuing that that career goal. I
0: guess hmm. yeah, that's really good of us. In terms of technology, what technology trends do you see are going to have the most impact on design in the coming years?
1: Yeah, well, everything's everyone's everyone's talking about AI, obviously, at the moment. The buzz, the buzzword, the buzzword. Well, it's interesting. I just I spent some time the other day. Um, thinking about it and, and actually having a look, at, you know, having a look through the Ts and Cs of a few of these emerging AI design assistant apps and stuff like that. At the moment, there I don't know if you've had a look at them, but you know, I'm not a lawyer, but when I look at them and I read them, it's quite clear to me, and I'm happy to be scored again that any, you know, the input that you put in is yours, but any derivative works that the AI has generated is theirs. Yeah. So in terms of um, a consultant that wants to um, generate IP on behalf of the client and then as part of our service gift that IP to the client we, we effectively embargo from using
0: those kind of plugins yeah. at the moment do so, you hear about what happened with Amazon how Amazon was saying their workers had to stop using ChatGPT because ChatGPT was pumping out results that were actual like background information that no one was meant to know within Amazon I didn't know
1: that wow
0: well.
1: yeah, yeah okay. quite Interesting. yeah so it's and I guess you know at the moment I see and then i think it's just this is just a symptom of um the immaturity of it at the moment and the, and the inputs it's pulling on but when you look at mid-journey and stuff it's um really average concepts presented beautifully incredibly mm. quickly and that's the wow factor is the presentation quality and the speed but when you did look when you look at the resolution of the concepts they that would never have been generated by a professional designer yeah so at some point there's going to be you know and this is a the interesting point is will they keep feeding the inputs so that when you know when, it's been, when a designer asks them to do an f1 car that's styled like a teenage mutant ninja turtle will that f1 car start adopting um aerodynamic inputs and starting to put spores where swallow should be and down mm-hmm. drop or down would be? or is it just going to always have this um generative aesthetic uh merge of, of, of separate inputs so it's interesting, man, I'm, ex- I'm interested, I'm interested to see where it goes and I'm, I'm excited to see how it affects our workflow. Mm. Uh, and I'm interested to see how they manage. And it's probably through the business model, right? They'll probably manage it through free subscriptions are always there. and paid for subscriptions are proprietary to um, the subscriber. Perhaps I'm not sure, but mm. either way, they'll need to work through the business model before it becomes something we can use. The other thing, obviously for us is, you know, um, Seeing the advances in additive manufacturing, I think is mm. interesting. Um you know, I think I come out of our digital lab, you yeah, know, digital fabrication lab and I hold things up to the team and I go, You have no idea how good this is. Like when I started, we had, you know, laminated bread models and we'd have to send all our stuff away to, you know, a bureau and it would take two weeks to get it. A- a part back that literally we can print something. The guys are all set the machines going tonight and mm. Monday they're going to have assemblies that they can put together. And, and not just in, you know, simulates, in materials that are so realistic to yeah. uh, what the production materials would be. So, you know, 4D printing, obviously you're probably across that. That's it's really interesting seeing how 4D printing is coming along. Mm. Um, and then starting to see the speeds really step up for um, laser process printers and projection printers. Um, still nowhere near fast enough for us to use in a meaningful way for mass production, but Mm. yeah, we'll see, we'll see how fast it can get. Um,
0: Do you think that if, if the 3d printing realm sped up in an exponential level, do you think that that would maybe remove the need for designers to have as much manufacturing background? If everything could just be made with three, I mean, a lot of things can be made with 3d printing, you know, like, would it be more important to be amazing at 3d printing opposed to, you know, have all this background?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's, it's definitely a thing. I think that's something you should definitely be across 3D printing and understand its freedoms that allows versus the restrictions that traditional manufacturing may impose on the design process.
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I'm doing this project at the moment with this um, manufacturer in China and he, I was like, what are the, what are the constraints? And because I originally I thought it was going to be an injection molded, and then he's like, oh, 3D printing, the only, the only limitation is draft angle. Like it's just it's just pretty amazing the difference between traditional processes.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, no, for sure. And you're seeing the combination of 3D printing with, you know, generative AI based morphology, um, CAD and that sort of stuff. Um, then that, that synergy coming together. I, I, I must say, I'm not a fan of the aesthetic it generates. Mm. You know, um, but uh, incredible seeing how that's coming together to produce these ultra ultra high performance engineering solutions. Um. Yeah with minimal material. And from a sustainability perspective, we've got to go that way, right? We can't keep having subtractive processes. We have to have as needed on-demand additive or, or grown manufacturing methods. Um, mm. But with a recycling system, it's fitting into that as well, right? Um,
0: it's really interesting because, you know, generative design aesthetic is actually quite organic. Like it looks like yeah. something you see in nature. So it's almost like we're moving back towards, you know, the basis in nature like because yeah. if you look at a current product it looks very you know unnatural compared to the the natural landscape
3: yeah
1: yeah but there's something about it's the same reason we faceted a diamond right it's it's there's something about the human input and the craft and the transition from one state to another mm. that has an embedded value and a perceived value um the craftsmanship means something yeah right? we, we're so that's that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out between um, the man, you know, the human-made versus the additive-made or the three D-printed solution, and see how that plans out in the future. And and I'll be, I'm intrigued. I, have, I don't have an opinion either way. I'm just intrigued to see how it goes.
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: it might be a bit like the Australian-made stamp of approval kind of thing. You know, like the handmade aspect opposed to a three D-printed product. There's yeah. the value there. Yeah.
1: Well, you're really starting to see the hashtags. No AI on a lot of Instagram posts at the moment, right? So people are clearly stating, needing to, feeling like they need to state uh, mm. that this was all human, this development, that wasn't generated through a, through Dali or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, no, it's exciting. I don't know, mate. It's, it's it's it's. Um, I think I'm interested to see we're seeing a mass, we're seeing a globalization to some degree is is definitely ha- had some real knocks over COVID, and I think it's interesting seeing. Um, companies start to pivot uh, and decentralize and start having more regional manufacturing. And and where that spins out to being, um, where that manifests itself to being one global product being made in in several locations or where they're gonna start having a North American skew versus an Australian or Asia Pacific skew or product Mm -hmm. verse, where they're gonna start seeing um, culturally specific um, product design again, which would be quite interesting, I think. From mm. our perspective, from, a, from our practice perspective. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Mm. How do you approach collaborating with other design professionals, engineers, and manufacturers on a project?
1: Yeah. So. Um, you know, if it's if it's so, I guess that's part of the group, right? clandestine design group. But so the group's not about. Um, I got asked this the other day by a client. Uh, what what the group's about, and but he, asked, he assumed I owned a heap of businesses, but I, I don't. Uh, I'd like to one day, but uh, it, it's about our network partners, right? So it's about the people that I've been working with for you know twenty something years that are supporting collaborators and professionals, um, and they can range from brand designers and a brand designer obviously is a little bit more strategic than just a graphic designer doing a logo, like a proper strategic brand agency,
2: Mm.
1: all the way through to um, electrical engineers, obviously, uh, firmware engineers, software engineers, um, full app development consultancies. Um, And then you've got your your highly regulated fields, but in med tech, you're going to have medical design officers and regulatory officers and medical engineers and material scientists. Um, And then you've got your... And you know, you're thinking think about your business side, you've got your grant advisors, your own tax officials, you've got um, IP attorneys, uh, legal and litigation defense attorneys. there's this massive r and d network of professions that come together around us or with us, and we're part of it. Um, and it's part of what I love about this industry actually is is how supportive we are of our other related disciplines and how much mm-hmm. we work together on projects. so, you know, we've got iot projects at the moment um you might have seen on the website i've seen our press we got uh, we helped a young team that was the uq spin out do monty which was a um i don't know if it's the world's first but it's probably one of the world's first um, iot compost sensors so she was a recent graduate from uq um she went through the ilab accelerator program i mentor that that, that, that um accelerator from time to time and and met Ashley, and we helped to take her idea which was how to produce the world's friendliest smartest compost monitor from a concept all the way through to production and that that involved all of those elements right all those partners came together and we were working day in day out with them hand in hand as we took the project through and took her through the journey of r&d which is pretty risky and can be pretty expensive if we get it wrong
3: yeah yeah
1: so, I mean, how do we do it? It's literally, you know, a whole bunch of conversations at the start, um, me pulling the team together and seeing where the capacity lies. Um, obviously we're all under a confidentiality agreement so we can actually talk about these concepts and, and make sure there's no conflicts of interest, right? So we can't have a brand designer working for us if they're currently doing another compost monitor company, right? So you have to get the, the conflicts of interest sorted out and then the capacity sorted out and you bring the team together and obviously the client needs to feel like the team's right.
2: Mm.
1: So there's a whole lot of human management skills that happen at the start if I'm taking the lead on the project management side. And then we've got to, you know, and, and, and I'm grateful that we've been working so long together that those guys will give some gratis time, some in-kind time to flesh out the scope. Mm. And we will we, we'll run a couple of workshops together and then they'll go away and basically scope and quote, their parts of the project and then we align our timelines and then we work out how we're going to do it and, and in Ashley's case you know it was a very successful project um, mm-hmm. for other clients we might be able to get them to a certain position and then we need to get a VC pitch deck together and we'll help them go out and get VC investment before we take them to the next stage um, so that's that mentoring and management part I was telling you about it's not just doing design it's, it's business growth management and business mentoring that happens with it doesn't have to be me on, I, I don't do every project in some summer projects. It's the brand designer taking the lead or maybe electrical engineering consultancy that's taking the lead. Hmm. We're all intimately knowledgeable enough around our processes that we can um, happily take those leads on those projects.
0: Okay. What, can you share some insights on industrial design, on the future of industrial design and how you see the field evolving in the decade and maybe also speak to how you saw it evolve in the past, as you mentioned
1: before? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know i think industrial if i think back to when i started um we had you know craig came from uh he's english trained european so english went to university in england and was born and uh, raised in england did a lot of professional development working in europe and uh, then america and then came out to visit family in australia and he saw that there was An opportunity to stand up a real european design consultancy like a european style consultancy anglo-german or anglo-austrian style consultancy in australia and when he did his tour around the country he kind of thought well brisbane's a pretty lovely space i'll set one up here and if you think about i guess the challenges he had and that we had as a team working under him is that he was wanting to have those same conversations those mature design led design innovation conversations with Corporates that just hadn't, hadn't didn't even know what industrial designer was. Mm. So he had to go on an industry level education program. At the same time, he was trying to obviously get work and feed us as a bunch of hungry nows and 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 grow the business. So it was quite challenging, and he did incredibly well. And, and he wasn't the only one. There's obviously Scott Cox and, mm. and Scott Rob and-, and Rob Geddes. Those yeah. guys were all there doing the same, trying to lift the industry and train um, executives and general managers and founders around the importance of design mm. um you know we had murray and john brown and uh, mark and, and fred down in melbourne and these are all you look at those big consultancies they're all very much um english centric or they've come from england or they've got that european flavor about them um, so there was that kind of that was all that sort of generation, and they were standing up these consultancies and and making impact, uh, which is which I guess we and you particularly, and I I know I benefited from it in my career, and you're going to benefit from it as well. That those guys put a massive amount of effort in mm. to establish industrial design as a formidable and valuable asset to R&D ecosystems. So you know when Craig was you know when we were working on work, it was you know, we were we were always severely limited by volume because this again as I said pre. In that sort of that era and it's probably been like this for the same that our, our clients we're always servicing the australian context so 25 million people if you're going to do a pool chlorinator uh for a company in brisbane that's selling to the australian market you might be doing orders of 500 at a time maybe 5,000 a year but if you're Onger out of europe it's 100,000 pool chlorinators every order
2: mm.
1: so immediately the challenge for us was how do we how do we design a solution that stands up nationally that also stands up internationally if the client can ever get them to the software they want to actually export that's been done on a business model and a, and a capex and an nre model of 500 units at a time versus the younger engineers in europe that are producing that are all injection molded uh pumping beautiful product out at fractions of the cost that we are producing mm. sheet metal or extrusions or compression molded enclosure systems because we can't justify the business model of spending you know 10 to hundred thousand dollars on tooling because we don't have the volume to support that tooling
3: yeah
1: so real challenging and it got us it made us really creative and it made us do things that the rest of the world hadn't done And, and i guess that's the necessity drives innovation bit right so I found that really interesting in the start of my career, and you know and, and often we'll fall back on it. We've got a client that wants to do a beta and they don't they don't want to overinvest in in they think the volume is big, but they don't want to overinvest. well, let's let's do a low batch production style design that's perfect for a particular process that won't break your bank, and we can market validate with that. Mm. Okay, so that's skill sets I learned twenty years ago that I'm bringing forward now but now with the client context, now we are global and clients are exporting and they're not just relying on the 25 million we've got here. And we are designing for scale and we are designing for injection moldings and mass production, high quality, world-class product. Mm-hmm. And um, that just wasn't a thing 20 years ago. So there's been a real shift in, in that market, sec- market design for that market acceptance, I guess.
3: Okay.
0: As you mentioned previously, um, when we spoke by email, you came from a Bauhaus-focused education. How do you see that that affected you as a designer? And maybe you speak to the specific things that you think it gave you.
1: Yeah, so like, you know, old man Gropius, Walter, I don't know when it was, 1920-something, 22, I think. He, he and the, I guess the senior leaders of the of Bauhaus, they're obviously very architectural-focused originally. I don't know if you've ever studied or looked at the, the course structure, you know, that, that preliminary course was around foundational knowledge that would be used and useful for your core secondary course of focus. Mm. And how that translated to, I guess, about housing influenced education that was existing all through the world. Still does. There's still unis that do this, but all through the world. In say 2000, when I was mm. going through, 1998 to 2001, is that when I think about my first year, and it might be interesting to compare notes with your first year. Like we did, sure we had a design stream, but I did uh, physics, chemistry, geography, biology, um, history, history in general, but of art, science, but also of industrial design particularly. Mm. And you think, well, what's, history, what's chemistry got to do with it? Well, when my guys turn to me and says, we're going to do a painted enclosure, what paint should we use? They're looking at it at a very top level of understanding around, you know, they're looking on the back of the pack to see if the paint has warning lights around, do not put on ABS? Mm. And I'm saying, well, what's the paint solvent base? What's this molecular structure? What polymer are you putting on? And I'm understanding that the solvents will attack those monomer chains at a chemistry mm. level. Yeah. Right. So there's a level of understanding and it's foundational that I have that my genius my designers just don't have. Mm. So in order for them never to, to not make that mistake, a uh, mistake I would never have made, I have to, that's that training burden kicking in again around those old tradecraft skills. I have to train them that knowledge and get them to understand that. We did electrical engineering, right? I can remember I can remember electrical engineering classes that we did with electrical engineers. So there was a lot of us moving around in that first and second year to different schools inside engineering and taking advantage out of those classes mm. and learning those skills. So, you know, the number of times I've taught young electrical engineers around the benefits of a hall effect sensor and um, different, different technologies that they're just not using anymore mm. that we can use in the context of electromechanical mechanical device. Sure. Part of that's my experience working in the industry, but there's a lot of that foundation knowledge came from um, that preliminary course that we we had in um, in those early years. Yeah. And as we went up through um, the years, you know, we had other pillars of design or industrial design were critical. So always making. So every project, every design project had to have physical um, product or models associated with it cad was introduced early you know i think about the CAD CAD software we learned over those four years was AutoCAD, pro-e rhino adventure solarworks um and it was trained at a level where it was you know there was i don't know what happens now it's been many years since i've been you know involved in universities but fundamentally we were always taught by industry practitioners i used to teach cad for example mm. um when i was recently graduated and everything I learned at uni, sorry, everything I learned from my consultancy, I was, you know, applying back into my course content that I was delivering at uni. Uh, yeah. So it's... Yeah,
0: university is very different structure now. Like, opposed to being taught CAD, you have to teach yourself CAD. And then you have, to, you're given, like, the task to apply it to. So, like, it's it's a very different thing. Like, obviously, I, I think I think your contact time back then would have been way more than it, than it is now like a lot of a lot of university now is is non-contact it's you are expected to do all that work at home you know the actual time you spend with your with your lecturers and your tutors is very low and yeah
1: yeah i mean i see it with my junior designers right and i guess i've been training junior designers in the consultancy context for 15 years and um i've seen that shift over that time and and there's some other really interesting things that that may not be apparent to you but apparent to me like because we are a fixed stream Single course cohort, right? With huge contact hours, as you say. We lived at uni. Mm. Right? Literally, we would sleep in the mezzanines in J Block and we would fight for Card Lab space and we would defend with our lives the Card Labs against the interior designers, right? So there was this incredible uh, contact time that occurred with our peers, and we were all going through the same stream at once. So there was when I say fixed stream, it was there was no major minor, and there was no mix and match your subjects. So you couldn't mm. back then. It was an industrial design degree. Um, the other thing we were encouraged to do, and we actively did, was because we were at uni so much, as we engaged with all the years above and below us. Mm. And we, when the fourth, when I was in first year, and the fourth years were presenting, we would go and see their presentations because mm. we, we had just seen their presentations get developed in the CAD labs and the printers that week. So like, there's some really nice designs here. We should go see them get presented. And that contact time and that community, that tribe that came as a result actually makes you pretty competitive because you're not benchmarking against the guy in your class. You're benchmarking against what you saw last year. That was a fourth year project. yeah, the best project you've ever seen. So you start getting quite competitive and, and pushing to excel in the context of your community. And then the thing that I find interesting with these guys is when I graduated, because you know I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's say there's, in every year there might be 50 students some years there's you know, 100 and something students, but when I graduated, I knew 300 people ahead of me, or 150 people ahead of me intimately, in terms of industry network. They're already out there,
2: mm.
1: and then I'm know I'm going to know 150 people coming behind me. So when I, if I'm three years out, this this you know, between 150 and 300 people that I know intimately that I can call on and connect with if it's going to work, I'm like, oh, Barry's working at a rotor mold on the north side. I'll give him a call and see if he can do this project for me.
3: Yeah, uh,
1: Shannon's working at a signage company. He might be able to have a laser cutter that can cut something for me. But the, you know, the junior designers coming out now, because they've been working remotely, as you're saying, and teaching remotely, but they've also got these mixed streams of content. I don't know that they know each other very well. I don't know that you know everyone. Well,
0: even even well. worse now, because of COVID, I've, I was lucky I did one year um Before COVID and one year after COVID, well, one year like at the end in person. But some of my peers, they only did the final year that they when they graduated last year in person. The first year of their of their three or four year degree. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, let's. I'm not saying there's there's still there's still let's, let's reframe a little bit. I think there's the modern ed, design education still has some value. I mean, mm. it's 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 incredibly broad what it's teaching students now, um which is good. So think about. The, the breadth of knowledge you've gained, um, which I, I think is good. But at the same time, I think it's come. At a, at a uh, there needs to be a balance. I think somehow we need to work out and it's probably against the, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty pragmatic business owner. So I understand that this also is a business model that needs to be sustainable. But, you know, um, the, the T-depth designers we were getting, which was a, a really strong but broad skill of design understanding and then, then a really deep trade craft knowledge mm-hmm. has really shortened up and then broadened out yeah so depending on where you want to go in your career that broad broader broader flatter t kind of designer that's graduating now globally will find a nice niche but if you do actually dearly want to work and work in industrial design as a trade practicing trade path industrial designer you need to fill that bit of the t up
3: Mm. yeah
1: no So that's that's I guess that's the challenge, and that's just the nature of the beast that you guys are faced with. But I think you know I've always been impressed with my junior designers' ability, and, and you you, know, you look at you, you're getting this podcast to try and show initiative around gaining this knowledge. Yep. designers can. Have, designers can solve. Designers can to quote Vince Ross, designers can design their life, right? Mm. And um, and and you're a case in point. But you know, so I think that's interesting. Though I just want to go back to that that community is something that we you know, I remember when the unis came out and engaged with industry about showing that they were going to break up the course in whenever it was mid-2000s and run this major minor. And so they did the right thing. They engaged with industry and industry went, yeah, cool. So you're saying you could have an industrial designer majoring in industrial design and minoring in Chinese language. Yes. Oh, that's freaking awesome. I must say, I've never seen that actually happen yet. I don't know if that's possible, but I'd love to have a graduate industrial designer with Chinese language and industrial design. Mm. Anyway, so... So that they did the engagement and went, cool, that's that, that makes sense. But we at the time and it's it's all you know, everything's wise in hindsight. I I never realized until training the recent wave of graduates just how disconnected they are from industry.
0: Just yeah. how
1: disconnected they are from their own cohort, right?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I have established some really good friendships at the end of my degree, actually, in the final year. But before that I barely knew anyone. Like I had passing people I spoke to in groups, but realistically I wouldn't say I had any friends as such like you know like quality people that i know
1: well um in yeah, it's interesting interesting. At that point really by our third and fourth year there was yeah. a large sections of our class that were all living together in different shape yeah. because you become such great colleagues and friends mm. and that just manifests itself out in the industry now so if you think about the design directors now around australia and probably this is being repeated globally we're all um And I guess that's probably what industry is a jovial collaborative industry is that we're all so well connected from that time. If I think about the guys who graduated around my era, you know, they're running design works or Forms or Catapult or, you know, the different consultants around the world, Mm. is that is that is my generation that came out of that tight uh connected single stream uh I guess design education. Yeah. so anyway, that's, I guess, what can you do, right? I, I can't see... Well, that's part, how, part of the
0: reason why I started the podcast because I yeah. think I get to meet more people in industry and, you know, get some more contacts and learn... learn, learn when,
1: when I left CMD, I went back teaching in 2015 and I had a year of non-compete. So I took up a design director role at Sunbeam and, uh, and then I was doing a Monday and a Friday teaching. And, um, you know, I saw that, this, that the course had really flattened out and I thought, well, there's no one really teaching the, the, the tradecraft pillars of model making, visual communication, and, and industry-level card, like teaching mm-hmm. it, mentoring it, mastering it, you know, master-apprentice-level teaching. So we, myself and three others started Auxiliary, which you probably aren't aware of, but haven't heard of. But it was a finishing course that we ran for five years, from 2015 to 2020. COVID basically put a nail in the coffin for it. But we were... Uh, by by their selection only, it was open to anyone, and it was a finishing program that we'd run, and we'd open up our studios to be night classes, and we'd basically pick some small cohorts and train them in those just those core fundamental skills, mm. uh, almost almost do a night studio. So when CDG would finish work at 5:30 in the afternoon, by six the students were in here, and my other directors would come in and we'd run a night program, and it was run as a real consultancy, and it was really just focusing on those finishing skills, you know. Industry level sketching, industry level BizCom in general, uh, industry level CAD, and industry level model making. Mm. And it was incredibly fun. I loved it, and the, t- the students had an incredible success with it, and all got really good vocational opportunities out of it, but not very scalable. So I've tried, but in terms of scaling it, it's very hard to scale as a business model. Um, our friend in the US and colleague Hector has managed to scale it with advanced design and offsite, but he's basically converted to a digital program. Mm. Uh, that's something to well, maybe get Hector on. I don't know if you know Hector De Silva, but um, reach out to him and have a look at advanced design and offsite, two, two amazing, um, especially for emerging designers that really do want to reconnect with traditional industrial design and get those skills. I think that's a great um, opportunity for you guys to share Hector's work over there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it is it's it is a challenge, mate. And I, it's, it's um, you know, I think... I see it, We you know, the other thing to probably, I guess, recognise is COVID was bad in terms of isolating you guys in education, but it was also good for three or, three or so years in that you didn't have to compete with all the international talent. So mm-hmm. right now, every day, we're getting four or five portfolios from all over the world. Um, so when, I guess that's our other bit of advice is don't, as as you know, your colleagues and emerging designers that are coming after you are setting up their portfolios and their work, don't critique the guys next to you or the girls next to you critique mm. the best out of france and the best out of germany and the best out of the us because that's australia is a very desirable place to live mm. and work right so it's attracting we can't help but attract the very best talent in terms of portfolios into our now we may not employ them and we may not want to sponsor them or take on the visa rights or anything else but uh just be aware that that's every day when i'm looking at a portfolio i'm looking at work that's coming out of fh um joanne and garage austria or umia in sweden and i'm looking at that as a graduate level of perception yeah so that's unfair because a lot of those european unis are still training at a industry-ready um craft skill set right mm. so um yeah i think that's another just if i was to summarize that put on is you're looking for inspiration you're benchmarking your skills don't don't necessarily lock it to local look international and and peg yourselves against the very best um designers that you can step up to and try and uh, beat in terms of
0: skill sets Hmm. how do you see the relationship between industrial design and art and how has that affected your design process
1: yeah look i i enjoy um i enjoy making things um I'm, I'm a natural maker. I'm always building stuff, and and but art, I find I, I don't really enjoy as much as I do a design. Like if I'm on holiday, I went, to, I drove my wife crazy. If we go to Fiji, I will happily you know, go for a swim and have a cocktail, but you'll find me opening up CAD pretty quickly and designing something. Uh, something completely pleasurable, something I haven't had a chance to work on because design and life for me are just not... Uh, I love g- generating solutions and, and developing things that work. And art, uh, sure, it's, it's it's fine, but I'd much rather sketch a motorcycle. I know you're a key so I'd much rather sit and sketch a motorcycle than an abstract painting.
3: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, so for me, I I appreciate art, but I um, it's not something that I a lot of value you don't think it has
0: an interrelationship between industrial design um
1: well aspects of it you know composition proportion color theory you know we 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 teach all that obviously um and that's all part of core artistic skills for sure Mm. um but for me, it's I see beauty and meaning and outcome and, and value and 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 things that work to do things in society. provide concept. positivity and passive pieces of uh, illustration and in. I admire the work that's gone into them. I admire the human endeavor, but I don't. Um, I much rather go to the powerhouse than the Australian National Gallery, for example.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so anyway, that's just me. I'm a bit. Weird like that, probably, but you know, uh, oh. I enjoyed art at school. I enjoyed particularly, oh, so okay, that's interesting, right? Love pottery, mm. uh, less keen on, on painting, yeah, okay, which is interesting, right? So, you're making and manifesting a useful object, an artifact, an artistic artifact that has use as opposed to decorative.
0: Mm. Well, I suppose, in a way, you could say that the traditional design skills almost integrate with you know, like sculpturing. For example, yeah. it's it's yeah, a absolutely. it's a key yeah. technique in you know. And absolutely.
1: If you think about where we were before the industrial revolution and before the Bauhaus, we were we were blacksmiths and mm. potters and ceramicists and wheelwrights and all those kind of things. So yeah. for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. I haven't been asked that for a while. It's interesting because in my team there's some incredible artists, you know, mm. there's really fine, like self-trained but incredible artists and um, and they love it and they love the meditation and the expression that comes out of it um and i get it and i appreciate it but for me i'd rather not spend time doing that i'd rather spend time um doing something that has I don't know, a tangible functional performance outcome
0: mm. yeah. yeah function over form i suppose
1: <laughs> maybe yeah exactly but you know in terms of um critique so i guess that's interesting so art obviously teaches you to critique and i think that's something that's missing out of modern education globally is the is this harsh critique meaningful and constructive critique and um and justification you know there's some principles there as well that i think um are probably a little bit lean at the moment education so you know i think back to my my time going through uni we we got critiqued harshly and and you know if our quality of our thinking wasn't on game and how that manifested out to the quality of our product outcome we were severely you know i guess um we were put a, a detriment. You know, I can remember work being pulled off of, off the wall because it wasn't a stand It wasn't a standard. That's, that's, yeah. that was really interesting. It wasn't a standard. So it wasn't whether it, you know, uh, responded to the CRA. It was, is this an industry standard? Have mm. you done everything possible to get this to where it needs to be? And yeah. if it isn't, then it's off the wall and on the floor. And you would lose a you'd lose a, a mark and a week, and you'd have to re resubmit the next week. There had to be an industry standard, otherwise you would lose another mark. So it was interesting how you didn't put the effort in. It was hard. I mean, I had guys in my, my year that were you know, working full time as well as trying to fit in you know, ridiculous contact hours in mm. some weeks. So they, the shifts just fell in a way that they just couldn't put the effort in and they fell below standard. Yeah. Um, so anyway, critique. And so then once you were at standard and once the work was on there, there was this long critique that would occur as to why your design was good, how could you make it better? Why is it better than another person's design? Um, and that was across all years. And I still remember those critiques and fourth years coming down and watching you and you going up to fourth years and watching their critiques. And that was that was really interesting and and, and interesting, you know detailed conversation around colour theory and how you've used color and the emotional connection of that color to the brand or the emotional connection of that color to the semantics of the product. And then proportion, you know thinking about art theory, proportion control. That's something I see a lot missing out of young portfolios at the moment is imagine, design portfolios is their control and proportion is really poor mm. um, ratios and, and, and the way um, light falls on a product. They're not, I don't know if it's a limitation of their CAD skill, but the work that's being rendered is not, um, it's not illustrating surfaces. It's not tonally controlled. It's not giving you proportion. You're not having a sense of lightness out of a product. It's blocky and heavy and um, crude.
3: Mm. okay
1: so There's art that. art has yeah so you're right you probably you probably convinced me art has a strong um it has a strong role to play in those foundations around design particularly around theory and principles um but do i wake up a bed and uh, do i get up a bed and want to be an artist hell no mm, okay
0: well yeah well thanks for having thanks for coming on neil it's been great to chat to you about your career as a designer and yeah it's been really interesting learning about your insights
1: yeah no problem at all thanks again and yeah um good luck with it all and if i can deliver any links or um offer any referral services or anything like that then yeah to you and the guys that are emerging let us let us know
0: yeah cool thanks neil
1: thanks man Cheers.